Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon without fail to defend and to promote public education. And we have a very interesting program for you this afternoon with all of our different uh, people who join with us. And um, we have a press release which is going to be on our website at www.adogs.info. This press release goes to the idea of separation of church and state, which we believe in, and it's going to take us over to America where there is a very interesting development with charter schools that are supposed to be public schools but are now becoming more and more religious schools. So Andy is going to tell us about that. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. Today's press release is a news report from the Americans United for Separation of Church and State, issued on July the 31st, 2023. Americans United for Separation of Church and State is a religious freedom advocacy organisation based in Washington, D.C. Founded in 1947, Americans United educates Americans about the importance of church-state separation in safeguarding religious freedom. Oklahoma City. Nine Oklahoma residents and a non-profit organisation dedicated to supporting public education in Oklahoma filed a lawsuit on July 31, 2023 in state court to stop Oklahoma from sponsoring and funding the nation's first religious public charter school, St Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School. The plaintiffs are faith leaders, public school parents and public education advocates who object to their tax dollars funding a public charter school that will discriminate against students and families based on their religion and LGBTQ plus status, fail to adequately serve students with disabilities and indoctrinate students into one religion, all in violation of Oklahoma law and our country's promises of the separation of church and state in public schools that are open to all. Americans United for Separation of Church and State, the American Civil Liberties Union, Education Law Centre and Freedom from Religion Foundation represent the plaintiffs. They are assisted by Oklahoma-based counsel Odom and Sparks and J. Douglas Mann. Approving St Isidore's application violated Oklahoma Constitution state law. The lawsuit demonstrates that the Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board violated the Oklahoma Constitution, the Oklahoma Charter Schools Act and the board's own regulations when it approved St Isidore's application for charter school sponsorship on June the 5th, 2023. Reasons that the application was unlawful include... Isidore plans to discriminate in its policies and practices based on religion, sexual orientation, gender identity and other protected characteristics. Students could be denied admission, disciplined or even expelled if they or their families are LGBTQ+, a different religious faith or do not otherwise conform to certain Catholic religious beliefs. Isidore reserves the right to discriminate against students on the basis of disability and failed to show that it would provide adequate services to students with disabilities. Isidore plans to provide a religious education and indoctrinate its students in Catholic religious beliefs. The school's application states that the school will participate in the evangelising mission of the Catholic Church and will fully incorporate the Church's teachings into every aspect of the school, including all subjects taught and all activities offered. The Archdiocese of Oklahoma City will have control over the school in violation of board regulations that require a charter school to be independent of its educational management organisation. Plaintiffs asking court to block St Isidore from operating. The plaintiffs are asking the District Court of Oklahoma County to block 1. St Isidore from operating as a charter school, 2. The charter school board from entering into or implementing any contracts with St Isidore, and 3. The state from funding St Isidore. A religious public charter school is a sea change for American democracy. Rachel Laser, President and CEO of Americans United, said, A school that claims to be simultaneously public and religious would be a sea change for American democracy. It's hard to think of a clearer violation of the religious freedom of Oklahoma taxpayers and public school families than the state establishing a public school that is run as a religious school. We are witnessing a full-on assault on church-state separation and public education. And religious public charter schools are the next frontier. America needs a national recommitment to church-state separation. Defendants in the lawsuit are the Statewide Virtual Charter School Board, its five members, the Oklahoma State Department of Education, State Superintendent of Public Instruction Ryan Walters, and St Isidore of Seville Virtual Charter School, Inc. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, Andy. Um, 
here in Australia, of course, we have entanglement of religion and the state in a very big way, even bigger than over in America, although they're very quickly catching up. Uh, and this is in spite of the fact that we have Section 116 in our Constitution, uh, which one would have thought that there should be separation of religion from the state. But unfortunately, a lot of our problems in education are caused by the fact that this is no longer the case. If you want to find out more about that, you can go out to our website and look at the Dogs High Court case. We tried and we failed. There's now no longer any religious liberty in Australia and there is now no longer the separation of religion from the state. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to talk about equity. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to scream out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 Well, what has happened, of course, as we all know in Australia, is that education is becoming less and less equal. There is education for the wealthy and there is education for the disadvantaged. Unfortunately, there is a lot of emphasis upon the disadvantaged and too little emphasis on what is happening with the wealthy and how they're running away with all of taxpayers' money. But uh, Maddie is going to read us a very interesting article entitled The Clarion Call for Equity. Over to you, Maddie and Dale. Thank you, Jean. This is Clarion Call for Equity. Free, inclusive, quality education for all is a noble aim. And if evidence from the OECD is any indicator, countries whose education systems combine quality with equity are the highest performers. In Australia, governments promise a fair go, meaning that everyone will have the opportunity to succeed in education and beyond. But that is not necessarily the case, says author and Finnish educator Parsi Salberg, Professor of Educational Leadership at the University of Melbourne. Indeed, the confusion between rhetoric and delivery could come down to semantics. We need to be clear about what we mean by equity in education, because my experience here is that people have very different views. Some think we can enhance equity by broadening educational opportunities, making more choice available, says Salberg. But the basic principle for me is what we often call social equity, which means that educational outcomes, however they're measured or defined, should be similar across different social or equity groups. In Australia, that simply isn't the case. There is great disparity in educational outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, children from low socioeconomic groups, those for whom English is not their first language, and children who live in regional, rural and remote areas. If the goal for every child in this country is to accomplish an agreed level of education, to achieve social equity and equality of educational outcomes, that takes money. David Edwards, Education International General Secretary, says there is plenty of money out there to address this inequity should governments choose to prioritise it. Funding is available when it comes to subsidising the fossil fuel industries polluting our planet. It's available when it comes to war or giving tax breaks to the rich and corporations. What is lacking is the political will to truly make education a priority. EI's Go Public Fund Education campaign is a global initiative to unite 32 million educators from 383 member organisations in 178 countries to fight for publicly funded education systems able to deliver inclusive, quality, public education for all. Education status tells us so much about a country, says Edwards. The prospects for children, the health status of the population, the income and civil rights of women, the likelihood of innovation and entrepreneurship, and a country's ability to respond and adapt to crises including conflict, climate change and natural disaster. Globally, the statistics are grim, 
Edwards says 220 million children are not in school, 450 million students in school are not learning at their expected grade level, and there's a worldwide shortage of 69 million teachers. We need to turn this tide to meet all students where they are, address their needs and help them overcome the obstacles they face. For that to happen, we need well-funded public education systems and well-trained and well-paid educators that have the trust, tools and time to deliver quality, inclusive and equitable education for all, says Edwards. According to Edwards, education financing has fallen in 65% of low and middle income countries and in 33% of upper middle and high income countries since the start of the pandemic, leaving educators everywhere without the resources they need to help students heal and make up for lost time. In addition, widespread policies driving uncompetitive pay, unsustainable workloads and growing precarity are driving teachers out of the profession they love and making it impossible to recruit and retain the teachers the world needs. We're demanding that governments commit to education, says Edwards. Large corporations and wealthy individuals can no longer be allowed to leverage the financial system for speculation and short-term profit-making while raising prices, hiding assets and undermining state revenue collection. Billions in uncollected taxes must be marshaled for the extensive investments in the public good, like public education, and to build economies that provide sustainable and broad-based growth. After a 20-year teaching career in Queensland, primary and secondary schools, many of them in rural and remote areas and on country, Kamilaroi women Melita Hogarth has seen the difference that resources and proper funding can make, but she says it's a rare sight. Hogarth, now an Associate Professor in Indigenous Education at the University of Melbourne, says for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children to achieve the same educational outcomes as non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, schools need to receive funding that addresses the inequities that currently exist. That became evident during COVID when students who were already struggling were detrimentally affected because they didn't have the financial resources for access to the internet. So issues that were already apparent to teachers before COVID became more pronounced, she says. A lot of people talk about equity in terms of equality of opportunity rather than recognising that everyone does not have the same starting point, Hogarth says. Australia's education system is, in many ways, grinding to a halt in terms of its relevance to and in support of students, says Keith Waters, who's the Executive Officer at Youth Development Australia. Waters has experience in helping young people, especially those out of the juvenile justice system or home care settings, making the transition from secondary school into work. He's also a single father of nine, all of whom attended public schools. He says Australia is not resourcing schools to enable teachers the tools to keep pace with the rapidly changing world of work and the skills required to participate in it. It is abundantly clear to me in all of my experience, which has spanned public and private schools, the public schools struggle under the weight of a pure lack of resources, whether that's the overall funding levels or capital investment, says Waters. He's staggered by the number of schools he sees that are in disrepair and not fully functional because governments don't make the necessary investments. The significantly growing numbers of disengaged young people comes down to a lack of resources in public schools to provide the teaching and support that those students need. Early school leavers are disadvantaged when it comes to participation in the workforce and are at higher risk of becoming homeless. With the cost of living crisis biting many families, those living hand-to-mouth can find it difficult to make education a priority, says Waters. There's a whole range of other risk factors, so it's really important to invest in ensuring that all young people have a quality education, but in particular, to give young people who experience disadvantage every opportunity to complete their education and to fully participate in the labour market. That places even more pressure on already underfunded schools and governments need to address that. The burden that schools have to carry to try and keep those kids engaged is really difficult and with that often comes other issues of disadvantage so it just compounds. There's a geographical inequity, what you get depends on where you live and that's something that's got to be addressed also. 
But it's not just local geography. Waters, whose youngest son is African, says schools can't adequately assess children, especially new arrivals, from different diaspora. The resources just aren't there for schools to be able to assess the educational level these kids are up to and how they're best supported. A student at 13 who should be in year 7 might have the academic skills of someone in year 3. And that's not the school's fault, that's not the teacher's fault, the resources just aren't available, Waters says. The AEU and Youth Development Australia will hold a two-day Bridging the Divide summit to examine equity in education. Discussions will consider models for economic investment, political capital, initial teacher education, decolonisation in the classroom, wellness, student-led learning, teaching culture, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community connection, supportive practices and inclusion. And tickets are available for in-person attendance on the 30th and 31st of October 2023 at Melbourne Park or for individual sessions online. And just to finish off that article, uh, for above and beyond, for disability advocate and inclusion international council representative for Asia Pacific, Stephanie Gottlieb, equity is about inclusion and opportunity and the specific resourcing required to achieve that. Gottlieb's son, Adam, now 23, lives with intellectual disability and autism. He has high communication and behaviour support needs. When Adam was starting school, Gottlieb was asked why she she wanted him to learn to read. For me, it was about every child getting a fair go and having access to an education that enriches and values them and gives them opportunities. If we deny that to kids, particularly kids with disability, the community misses out, says Gottlieb. And this article was from the Australian Educator in winter 2023. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Maddie. And um, we'll have a little break now and come back to uh, go over to South Australia. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, We'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope, and here we are on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. And over in South Australia, uh, a very specific requirement for employment has baffled job seekers. And we're back with the whole notion of separation of religion from the state. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. South Australian schools' very specific request baffles job seekers. Job seekers on the hunt for a new gig have been left confused after a school job advert listed a very unusual requirement. And this is an article written by Nathan Schmidt and published on August the 1st, 2023 on NCA Newswires. Job seekers have been left baffled by a school's job posting requiring applicants to demonstrate regular church attendance. Harvest Christian College in Kadena on South Australia's York Peninsula submitted a job listing on Monday for a student support officer. According to SEEK, the successful applicant would need to demonstrate not only relevant qualifications, but a commitment to religious tenets. Applicants will need to demonstrate a sincere commitment to Jesus Christ and the philosophy of Christian education, the posting stated. The applicant will also need to show regular church attendance and agreement with the college's basis of faith. If successful, the applicant would work within classrooms supporting students with disabilities and learning difficulties. The requirement for an applicant to be church-going raised eyebrows online amid questions of its legality. Harvest Christian College in Kadena on South Australia's York Peninsula created a job listing on Monday requiring regular church attendance. Is this legal under fair work, wrote one person. Although at a religious school, I've never seen a job ad that stipulates regular church attendance. I mean, demonstrating a commitment to the ideal of the school's faith is one thing, but mandating regular church attendance seems rather discriminative to me. 
Some users questioned why a non-believer might want to work at a religious school, while others defended the posting. Do you really want to apply for a job at a religious institution if you're an atheist? One user wrote. Another said, it's good that they lay their cards on the table up front. Imagine if you got a job there and then realised this was what they were like. A second posting for temporary relief teachers included similar requirements of church attendance and sincere commitment to Jesus. The posting comes only months after the Australian Law Reform Commission released its draft plan to update anti-discrimination laws. Under the consultation paper, the ALRC proposed new protections for teachers and staff at religious schools from discrimination. The proposal would allow religious schools to maintain their religious character by giving preferences based on religious grounds. Schools would also be permitted to require all staff, including teachers, to respect the educational institution's religious ethos. Christian Schools Australia Director of Public Policy Mark Spencer said religious schools wanted to choose staff who shared in their beliefs. To use the language of the Law Reform Commission, schools are trying to build a community of faith, he said. To do that, you've got to have people of faith. Now, that's just not just around teaching positions necessarily. That's across the whole school community where we expect everyone to be able to share their faith and to model their faiths to students, to our staff and to members of the public they might engage with. Mr Spencer said support staff like the role being advertised while not teaching still modelled the behaviour and faith of the school. He said staff who might wish to apply but did not meet the church-going requirements could find work elsewhere. There are lots of other schools around the place, he said. Parents have choice as to where they send their children. Staff have choice as to where they go and apply for a job. We're very clear about who we are, what we want and what we're looking for with our staff. According to the school website, Harvest Christian College offers a range of classes but provides Christian emphasis in all subjects taught. The school is a multi-denominational college with children from eight denominations attending and is governed by a college board. The College Board is elected by the Copper Triangle Christian School Association, the website states. It is made up of parents and interested Christian community members. The school is affiliated with over 100 other schools through Christian Schools Australia. It is also registered by the Non-Government Schools Registration Board and is affiliated with the Association of Independent Schools of South Australia. Well, um, before I hand back to Eugene, I just might make a comment. Uh, It's all very well to uh, talk about choice, but I think what all Australians would choose is a proper, complete and free education to every Australian, regardless of their religious background. And funding schools like this just actually reduces that choice. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, Andy. Of course, if this school was generally independent and didn't take taxpayers' money, well, I suppose they would have every right, I suppose, to demand that teachers actually attended church every Sunday. But um, they do take taxpayers' money, a considerable amount of it. So uh, we have the entanglement of religion with the state in a big way. But um, let's be a little bit more positive. State schools are still, in spite of the fact that they're defunded or underfunded, always going to be better than private schools because they are the main schools of the country and they are open to all children. And uh, they have been doing some very interesting things for over a century particularly the little bush schools. But um, a lot of teachers are now discovering and educators are discovering how important children's getting their fingers dirty and learning all about our wonderful country can be. So let's uh, think about the bush learning boom and uh, you'll find a bit later that our great state school has a program like this. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article by Margaret De Silva here, Behind the Bush Learning Boom, Why Getting Dirty and Lighting Fires is Good for Australian Children. So proponents of forest schools argue that outdoor learning improves social interactions and results in fewer gendered play experiences for preschoolers. Three children scramble over rocks in a low-level Brisbane Creek bed where four-year-old Jasper finds a yabby. At least, he thinks it's a yabby, it could be a crayfish or possibly some other unlucky creature caught in his small handheld net. More children run to join the debate, their gumboots slipping in the creek's muddy banks as shrieks of excitement match those of the cockatoos in the leafy canopy above. The children, aged three to six, crowd around their educator to theorise about the discovery. What could it be? Where did it come from? Should they let it go or bring it out of the creek? 
It's this kind of hands-on learning that proponents of forest school say can only be found in the great outdoors. Over the course of three hours, the class of 24 explores the suburban creek and bushland with small hands kept busy collecting sticks and digging in the mud, worlds created in the complex games between tree logs and boulders and little bodies stopping to rest rest on colourful blankets by the creek to eat, read or join in the nature-based craft activity. Today, it's lantern making to celebrate the winter solstice. It's not long before someone asks, can we have fire? The answer, perhaps surprisingly, is yes. Forest school, bush kindy, beach school, outdoor immersion, depending on the state you live in, the terminology may be different, but there is no doubt that the popularity of alternative all-weather outdoor programs for preschool-aged children is growing nationwide. As mother Talia Syme explains, when her four-year-old daughter Aria runs off to join friends in the creek, forest school is permission to get dirty. I love that their learning skills usually reserved for adults, how to start a fire, how to use sharp tools safely, how to take calculated risks and establish boundaries and communication with adults, she says. Based upon a Danish concept, the forest school movement is an international phenomenon with decades-old programs established across Europe and the UK. Australia's first recognised bush kinder was established in 2011 in Melbourne. Dr Chris Speldwinder, a lecturer at Melbourne Graduate School of Education at the University of Melbourne, has been mapping Victoria's bush kinder sector as part of his research and estimates there are now 150 to 200 established programs in that state alone. Speldwinder says benefits include improved social interactions and fewer gendered play experiences, but also an increase in STEM learning as children begin predicting, rationalising and hypothesising. Being out in nature, it's a changing canvas every day, he says. Allowing children to discover and to investigate, these are all skills that are beneficial in terms of their critical thinking as they get older. His research indicates that teaching methods matter less than letting kids learn in nature, begging the question of how parents can access the quality of programs on offer. Aside from ensuring safety procedures and risk management plans are in place, Speldwinder says the key is that there is intention behind playtime. There needs to be a purpose behind what you're doing as an educator, he says. As a parent, I'd be looking at how is my child going to develop socially and in terms of context, what are they going to be learning? We are diluting risk in childhood. It's hardly a new idea that children should play outside, but increasingly, Australian parents are now keeping their kids from getting dirty. A 2022 Royal Children's Hospital National Health poll found that although 94% of parents recognised the benefit of play for a child's physical well-being and brain development, less than half of Australian children play outdoors most days, and a third of parents did not think it was good for play to involve risk. These figures are dismal, according to Professor Tonya Gray, a senior researcher at the Centre of Educational Research in Western Sydney University who wants to see a nature-fueled education revolution. We are diluting risk in childhood, she says. We need children to become risk technicians. This is a very interesting article. Back to you, Jean. Well, isn't that lovely, Dale? I don't know about you, but my happiest memories of the child are being in my mother's garden and going through the bush with my older sister mm. as she gathered uh, botany specimens for her university course. Oh, wow. What are your memories? Uh, uh, very, very similar. Um, what struck me about that article was the mention of yabbies. Uh, a lot of people who, are, you know, I talk to these days uh, don't even know what a yabby pump is. And it's kind of like a, bi a oh. bicycle pump. And we would go out um, in the mud, in through the pumice stone and uh, put the pump in, in the water and in the mud and suck up a big thing and squirt it out and grab the yabbies. And that's what we used to bait our hooks to catch our fish. And um, that was just what we did. It was just part of life. 
life. And I, I must admit, I my heart felt good to hear them referred to yabbies because that's I, I grew up in central Queensland and uh, that's kind of like what the Queensland word for them. But uh, down here, like they, they're crayfish, whatever you want to call them. But uh, yeah, it's it's there's something to be said about being let out in amongst the nature. And what that article does talk about is you learn about the risks while you're there and the whole idea of child, of our children growing up being uh, parentally risk averse as opposed to being having their own critical thought processes becoming risk averse. I think that's quite an important point for that article to make because it does create when you're a kid when you go through it you learn uh to you learn what works and what doesn't through the action of doing so it's a i thought that was a very nice article oh you're so right and of course if we could teach our children to be creative and uh be prepared to take risks we might find a few less risk averse public servants particularly in this era when we have consultants and five-year contracts. But, um, yes, it was a lovely article. But uh, let's uh, leave Australia for a while because Jeff is going to take us overseas to the United States again. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. Just for change, I thought we might start with Britain. There's some interesting conclusions at the end. So... Uh, the article's uh, from August 7, 23, and it's called Britain's Posh Private Schools Move Further Out of Reach. And he goes, Peak inflation pain hasn't passed for everyone in the UK. The headline rate may finally be falling, but shocks still lie in store for some people. Some of the loudest groans have been emanating from parents opening their private school fee demands for the coming school academic year. I speak from rueful experience. My own bill is rising by well in excess of 10% once all extras are factored in. Conversations with London-based education consultants that help place children in fee-paying establishments suggest this isn't particularly out of the ordinary. Steve Spriggs, Managing Director of William Clarence Education Group, says he has seen increases as much as 15%. Joanna Mitchell, founder of Lumos Education, pegs fee growth in the capital at 7% to 9%, though puts nationwide average at a more modest 4.5%. The average annual cost of a day school in London already exceeds £20,000 or £44,000 for boarders. For the captains of British industry or the Russian and Chinese business folk who have helped to drive growth and demand for private school places in recent decades, these rises are a rounding error. But for middle-class parents, they are potentially life-changing. Many already live in smaller houses, drive cheaper cars and eschew follow-up foreign holidays to afford the fees, judging by posts on parenting website Mumsnet. A further squeeze on this demographic isn't good news for an economy that's already facing consumer spending headwinds. Granted, in many cases, the fee hikes are less than or in line with inflation, which averaged 9.9% on the consumer price index in the 12 months through June. Still, they're being levied on a base that over decades has inflated by vastly more than the change in the general price level. The average term, termly day rose to £5,552 in 22-23 from £1,759 in 1999-2000. According to data from the Independent Schools Council, that's a 216% increase versus an 83% rise in the CPI over the same period. Higher school fees come on top of surging mortgage costs, while house prices declines are eroding the wealth that many draw on to meet this expense. After a couple of bad years during the pandemic, which caused student numbers to decline and prompted many institutions to freeze fees or offer discounts, schools are back in expansion mode The average increment last year was 5.6%. A rise of more than 6% this year would be fastest in two decades. Private schools have been working hard to keep fees affordable, they say, and the increase over the past five years has been four percentage points less than wage inflation, said Julie Robinson, Chief Executive Officer of ISC, which represents about 1,400 schools covering more than 90% of the sector's students. A lot of that money goes to paying salaries. There's more. The opposition Labor Party, which has a commanding lead in the opinion polls ahead of a likely general election next year, plans to make private schools pay value-added tax, currently 20%. 
They are exempt, currently exempt from VAT by, by virtue of their charitable status, although it is often unclear what public benefit these institutions provide in charging lavish, lavish prices to educate the country's future elites. If that goes through, it will add a further jolt of upward pressure on fees. This perfect storm raises the question of whether we are approaching a breaking point for the industry's less affluent customers. Is there any limit to the amounts that people will pay to give young Johnny or Jemima an edge in the education rat race? Will parents, out of choice or necessity, start to abandon private education and return to the state sector? Probably not. Demand in this market is highly inelastic. Even if the fee squeeze is painful, most parents would fight tooth and nail to keep their children in private schools, says Nathaniel McCulloch, founder of Simply Learning Tuition and Consultancy. It's not hard to understand why. The best state schools are arguably just as good as the top private schools, if you can find a place in one, which is another matter. But parents aren't going, pri going private, aren't buying only education services. They will continue to pay for the same reason that people shop in Waitrose for groceries that are sold far more cheaply at Aldi. It signifies status and membership of a social caste. Such investments aren't mere vanity. They yield reliable returns. Only 6.5% of the UK's student population, or 592,000 pupils in the academic year just ending, go to private school. Yet members of this small minority are far more likely than state pupils to attend one of the Russell Group top universities, and they go on to dominate the upper echelons of British professional and politi political life. As of 2019, 65% of senior judges were privately educated, 59% of civil service permanent secretaries, and more than half of the House's lords, according to the Sutton Trust, a charity that focuses on social mobility. The very top institutions, known, confusingly, as Britain's public schools, are even more dominant. Eton College, alma mater of Prince William and Harry, who has produced 20 prime ministers more than any other school. A knottier question is whether private schools should exist at all. Abolition might seem an unwarranted interference in individual liberty, so it's surprising, perhaps, that plans to dilute or dismantle the private school system have a long pedigree in the Conservative Party, for which freedom of choice is a core value, as well as the more egalitarian-leaning Labor Party. As far back as the wartime 1940s, Winston Churchill, who attended Eton's great rival Harrow, advocated flooding public schools with state-aided pupils and ending schools' VAT exemption was proposed in 2017 by Michael Gove, a partly state-educated former Conservative Education Secretary before it became a Labor policy under Keir Starmer. Intuitively, people should have a right to spend their money on what they choose. The issue is that private schools have an impact on social justice and equality for, of opportunity for everyone else. Sequestering a minority away from their fellow students based only on an ability to pay is bad for social cohesion and entrenches privilege across generations. The private education market also deprives state schools of a core of motivated and aspirational parents who would otherwise devote their energies to improving that system. A country with widening inequality could do with that help. In effect, this clash of liberties between the negative liberty of not being constrained and the positive liberty of being a full citizen enjoying the same potentialities as all, as Francis Green and David Kynaston write in The Engines of Privilege, Britain's Private School Problem. Other countries, notably the US, have private schools and rampant fees inflation, but Britain stands out for the degree of positional advantage that they confer. Green and Kynaston call the, the system educational apartheid. Many parents wrestle with this dilemma, myself among them. Full disclosure, I went to state grammar school. Two grown-up children were educated privately overseas. A stepson is in private school in the UK, and my youngest is in a state primary. For me, private education feels instinctively wrong. Yet parents also have a compulsion to give their children the best start in life that they can manage, and it's difficult to overlook the advantages that private schools enjoy in resources, roughly three to one greater, and access over the state system. Finland is the poster child for education. The country went fully comprehensive in the 1970s, in the teeth of some fierce op opposition. By the early part of this century, it was outperforming all other nations in the organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, and in the key disciplines of reading, mathematics and science, and has since featured at or near the top of international surveys of the most stable, socially just, best governed and happiest countries on the planet. 
If Britain decided to go down the Finnish route, I wouldn't object. In the meantime, I guess I'll keep sucking up the fee increases like the rest. So although the author was lamenting the cost rises of private education, he actually pointed out a lot of the advantages of state, the state system, something we should take on board here. Now, of course, we're going to our regular exploration of Diana Ravitch's wonderful blog, and she wrote an article on the 7th of August, 23, and it's called Perry Bacon Jr. Is Education Reform Dead? In 2020, when I first published my book, this is Diana Ravitch, Slaying Goliath, I opined that the education reform, as defined by No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top, standardised testing, school closings, school grades, charter schools, evaluating teachers by student scores, merit pay, common core, etc., was a massive failure. The test and punish and standardisation mandates had turned schooling into a joyless, test-obsessed experience that demoralised teachers and students alike. None of the promises of reform came to pass, but privatisation via charter inevitably led to vouchers and the defunding of public schools. The failure of federally mandated reforms seemed obvious to me, but Congress continues to use standardised tests as the ultimate gauge of students, teachers and schools, despite the destruction that was obvious to anyone with eyes to see. And the reviewer in the New York Times slammed my book for daring to doubt the virtue of ed reform, the ed reform movement. Perry Bacon Jr. wrote an article recently in the Washington Post entitled Education Reform is Dying. Now we can actually reform education. It was amazing to see this article in the Washington Post because for years its editorial writer was a cheerleader for the worst aspects of that destructive movement. We could do no wrong. Charters are wonderful. Firing teachers in principle are fine. But the education editorial writer retired. Hallelujah. And we get to hear from Perry Bacon Jr. In, and in addition to the always wonderful Valerie Strauss, who, whose excellent answer sheet blog does not appear in the printed paper but online, earlier today John Thompson responded to, on this blog to Bacon's brilliant article. What do you think? Perry Bacon Jr. wrote... America's decade-long bipartisan education reform movement, defined by an obsession with test scores and by viewing education largely as a tool for getting people higher-paying jobs, is finally in decline. What should replace it is an education system that values learning, creativity, integration and citizenship. Joe Biden is the first president in decades not aggressively pushing an education agenda that casts American schools and students as struggling, and in desperate need of fixing. He has not stated that education is the civil rights issue of our time, a sentence said by Presidents George W. Bush, Barack Obama and Donald Trump. His administration has backed policies, such as an expanded child tax credit that view giving people more money, not more education, as the main way to reduce poverty. There is a push from experts and politicians across partisan lines, including from Biden, to get employers to stop requiring college degrees for so many jobs. There is also a growing defence of college students who study English, literature and other subjects that don't obviously lead to jobs in the way that, say, engineering does. An education gospel is being dismantled, one that was 40 years in the making. In 1983, Reagan... The Reagan administration released a report called A Nation at Risk, the Imperative for Educational Reform. It warned that America's status as an economic powerhouse was under threat because its students were doing so much worse than those from other industrialised nations on standardised tests. That report put education reform on the national agenda and explicitly tied it to economic growth. But this education fixation wasn't just about the economy. The two parties couldn't agree on radical policy. Democrats wanted more funding and explicit policies to help black people and heavily black areas to make up for past discrimination, and the Republicans largely opposed them. What Democrats and Republicans could agree on was making education a priority. So Republican politicians, particularly Bush, pumped more money into schools as Democrats wanted, and the Democrats broadly adopted the view that education was the main way for black people to make up for the effects of racism, thereby, thereby shifting responsibility for black advancement from the government to individual African Americans, as Republicans wanted. Eventually, education, particularly getting a college degree, became viewed as the primary way for economic advancement, not just for black people, but for people of all races who weren't born into the middle class. The result was a bipartisan education fixation for much of the period between 1990 and 2016. It included the expansion of charter and magnet schools as an alternative to traditional public schools, an obsession with 
improving student test scores, accountability systems that punish schools and teachers if their kids and and teachers if their kids didn't score well. Increased government spending on college loans and grants is part of the movement to make college essentially universal, and a push for black students in particular not just to get college degrees but ones in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering and maths, that would help them get higher paying jobs. This agenda was, a, was racial, economic and education policy all wrapped into one. The problem is that this education push didn't work. While the number of Americans who have graduated from high school and, and colleges have skyrocketed in the last three decades, wages and wealth haven't grown nearly as much. Black people in particular haven't seen economic gains matching these huge increases in education levels. Instead of increased education benefiting Americans broadly, this education dogma created a two-tier system. White-collar, secure, high-paying jobs with good benefits went disproportionately to college graduates, while those in the worst jobs tended not to have degrees. And to get those degrees, Americans often had to borrow tens of thousands of dollars. So Americans started revolting. The Black Lives Matter movement emerged in 2013 and expressed frustration not only with police brutality, but also with the continued economic struggles of black Americans. But in the 2016 presidential campaign, both Senator Bernie Sanders, Sanders and Trump appealed to voters who felt abandoned by a bipartisan political establishment that appeared unbothered by the disappearance of manufacturing and other jobs that didn't require higher education. Sanders called for a free college, for free college appealing to young people frustrated that their best path to a good job was accruing tens of thousands of dollars in education debt. After Trump's election, both parties embraced the idea that they must try to help Americans, particularly those with without college degrees, who feel stuck in today's economy. So politicians are no longer casting education as the ideal solution to economic or racial inequality. Biden and the Democrats are specifically trying to create jobs that would go to non-college graduates, and they are pushing policies such as expanding Medicaid that would disproportionately help black Americans, even if they don't have much advanced education. But if the real aim of education policy is no longer really economic and racial policy, what should its goals be? Neither party seems to have a clear answer. Most Democrats defend teachers, a core party constituency, and extol public schools and community college, trying to shed the Democrats' reputation as the party for graduates of Ivy League schools, but they don't have a broader theory of education policy. The Republicans are doing something much worse. At the state level, they are largely abandoning public schools and instead aggressively pushing universal voucher-like programs for K-12 education to help as many families as possible to enrol their kids in private and or religious schools. They're also casting K-12 public school teachers and in particular college professors as propagandists who impose liberal values on students. At the college level, Republicans are trying to force out left-leaning faculty and push campuses to the right. I certainly prefer the teachers, professors and public schools are good perspective, the democratic one, over teachers, professors and public schools are bad, the Republican one, but neither is a real vision for American education. Here's one. Our education system should be about learning, not job credentialing. Schools and universities should teach Americans to be critical thinkers, thinkers, not automatically believing whatever they heard from a friend or a favourite news source. They should make sure Americans have enough understanding of economics, history and science to be good citizens, able to discern which candidate in an election has a better plan to, say, deal with a deadly pandemic. They should foster interest and appreciation of music, arts and literature. They should be places where people meet and learn from others who might not share their race, class, religion or ideology. Our schools and universities should, of course, also provide people with core skills for jobs that actually require higher education. They should provide a path to becoming a doctor, a lawyer, professor or any profession that requires specialist training without going into debt. What our education should not be is 16 years of required drudgery to make sure that you can get a job with stable hours and decent benefits, or a punching bag for politicians who have failed to do their jobs in reducing racial and economic inequality. What I think colleges and universities should do right now is to stop selling this myth that education is going to be the great equaliser. University of Wisconsin and Green Bay professor John Shelton said in a recent interview with Inside Higher Ed, Shelton, the author of a new book called The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy, added, I think what we need to do is focus on being the institutions that are going to help society solve these bigger problems, to be the place where people can encounter controversial ideas on campus, where we can have far-reaching conversations about what needs to change in our economy and how we're going to create the kind of world in which climate change doesn't destroy our entire way of life. 
Blessedly, education reform is dying. Now that we can reform our schools and colleges in a way that actually improves teaching and learning, if you can open the article, you'll see two graphs displayed. One shows that black educational attainment has risen substantially, the percent who have graduated high school and college, but black income and wealth has stalled. Those who were counting on education alone to eliminate poverty were wrong. It's a great article, and I heartily endorse the idea that schools shouldn't be just job training facilities. They should actually teach kids. That's the most important thing, that they learn, they encounter different ideas and thought methods, and they shouldn't be just trying to teach to NAPLAN and things like that. That's my personal opinion. Anyway, I thought you might enjoy those articles, and back to Eugene. Well, many thanks, Jeff. It's always very interesting to find out what's going on overseas and um, realise what we have to avoid sometimes here in Australia, although so many of our of our uh, public servants and others and our politicians seem to slavishly follow other countries. We wish they'd follow Finland, of course, but uh, they're not quite up to that. But we'll have a bit of a break and we come back for the best part of the programme the last part of the program, our Great State School of the Week. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. It's, we're up to the Great State School of the Week again and we've chosen this particular school because they run a bush learning program. But uh, Dale is going to tell you about it. Over to you, Dale. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school is Elstonwick Primary School. So here's a little bit about Elstonwick Primary School from their website. At Elstonwick Primary, students are empowered to be independent, critical thinking and collaborative learners. Their growth mindset fosters curiosity and their confidence motivates them to thrive and succeed. The learning environment created by caring, dedicated and diligent staff cultivates an atmosphere where students feel safe, valued and included, supported in achieving academic results while developing a positive sense of well-being and school pride. The school values respect, responsibility, personal excellence and curiosity and they're central to and embedded in the school vision. Elstonwick is committed to building consistent practice by embedding a whole school instructional model and incorporating high impact teaching strategies. The staff work collaboratively to ensure all students achieve at least 12 months learning growth each year in all curriculum areas and use multiple sources of formative and summative assessment strategies and data to track the progress. They aim to provide an environment where students are supported to be curious, creative and critical thinkers whose voice is clear and valued. The positive and collaborative climate for learning is built by staff, students, parents, carers and the community with a clearly articulated vision to ensure that student achievement, engagement and well-being is enhanced. And now some facts and figures from the Akara My School website. The school has 465 pupils and the Ixia value of the school is 1,164, which is well above the average of 1,000. The students are representative of a generally advantaged community. 67% have parents from the highest income quartile in the community, 25% in the second highest, 6% 
from the third quartile and 2% from the poorest, 25% of the community. 16% of the pupils speak a language other than English and there are no Indigenous students at this school. This is a school full of advantaged students with dedicated principals and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $12,772, about the Gonski Resource Standard, and well below that of any private school, to educate a child at this school. The school receives only $1.09 million from the federal government and $4.25 million from the state government. $610,000 from fees and $330,000 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have been only $317,000. All of this public and private money is well spent. The school has also has a bush learning program. So congratulations to all the staff at this school in Elstonwick. Well, that was... Uh... A very interesting program. We hope that you stuck with us through the hour and that you'll stay listening to 3CR. But if you want to find out more about the dogs, then you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. www.adogs.info. But from Dale, our wonderful manager, and from Andy and Maddie, and Jeff and me, it's bye for them. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I did, says Joe. Killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes. Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.